I think all of us are familiar with the, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is a, a very interesting book because it is like a, a miniature Bible. How many chapters we have in Isaiah? Anybody who doesn't know, you can check. <laughs> How many chapters? In Isaiah, 66, how many books are there in the Bible? Huh? How many? 66. And when you look at the way Isaiah is divided, the first that nine chapters are like the books, the that nine books of the Old Testament, that is from chapter one to, to chapter that nine, and then the, the 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 second part of the book from chapter forty to sixty-six is like the New Testament, and so it is a very interesting book. And when you look at the first that nine books of Isaiah, they talk about judgment because they sin. Isaiah was prophesying around seven hundred BC or before that from 740 BC to around 680 BC, he had a long ministry. But the ministry is primarily that of judgment because there is sin, sin in Israel and sin in Judah. And God had to bring judgment on not only his people Israel, but also the nations around because Sin demands God's judgment. And so for Judah, the verdict was uh, the exile. So that is what we, we see in, in, in this book. From chapter 1 to 35, we have prophecies of condemnation. And then 36 to 39 is a, a historical parenthesis similar to what you find in Second Kings, chapter 18 to 20. And this one looks back at the Assyrian invasion of Judah in 71 BC, and then it also anticipates the coming Babylonian invasion of Judah. So a lot of what you read in Isaiah, the judgments, particularly directed to Judah because he was a prophet who was based in Jerusalem was looking forward to what was going to happen. And then when you also look at the first part of the book, that is the, from chapter 1 to 39, there is a lot that is said about the Messiah. And the Messiah in that part of the book is portrayed as a king. Isaiah 7 to 12, you read several prophecies about the Messiah. The last 27 chapters, from chapter 40 to 66, are prophecies of comfort through the promises that God makes, promises of hope and the restoration. But this declaration of hope is based on the sovereignty and majesty of God. So when you read Isaiah, 
not only does he, does God condemn or judge his people because of their sin, particularly their idolatry, but he also gives them hope. In fact, the opening ones of Isaiah 40, the second part of the book, is comfort. In spite of what was going to happen, God still is going to comfort his people, is going to restore them. He makes very many promises, but this is based on the majesty and sovereignty of God. So that is what we need to realize. The other thing I would like you to note is uh, Isaiah is the Old Testament book that is quoted most in the New Testament. The other, eh? the book of Psalms. But Isaiah is quoted more than Psalms. So we have these uh, four passages in Isaiah, which are referred to as the, the servant songs. In fact, I, I, I came across somebody else who was also saying that there is a fifth servant song, because these ones are based on Isaiah 40 to 54. But when you go beyond that one, Isaiah 61 is so much similar to these other passages. So we can say there are more songs, more servant songs. Isaiah 61 is the one which was quoted by our Lord when he was given the scroll of Isaiah, just at the beginning of his public ministry. But this specific Passages are the ones that we are going to consider during the opportunity that the Lord has given me this, this month. The first one is Isaiah 42, from verse 1 to 9, and then we have Isaiah 49, 1 to 7, Isaiah 50, verse 4 to 9, and then the very, the most famous one the suffering servant of the Lord, Isaiah 52 from verse 13 all the way to the end of chapter 53. And these songs describe the servant as the one chosen by God to bring justice to the nations. That is what you read in Isaiah 42 and also to lead back the people of Israel to God. You read that one in Isaiah 42, verse 5. And uh, when we look at these passages, we will also find that the servant will be a light so that other nations will recognize God's saving power. We'll find that one in 49, verse 6. Isaiah, in those passages, is introducing the servant of the Lord, where God himself speaks of some person 
whom he describes as my servant. But when you look at the Bible, there are other people who are described, whom God describes as my servant. I would like to give you to give me an example of one who is described as, whom does God describe as my servant? Yes. Eh? Cyrus, you will have to give us uh, the, the biblical proof for that one. Another one? Eh? I'm, I'm straining to hear. Job. Another one? Moses. Another one? The first one, the first one to be this, where God describes as my servant, Abraham. Abraham, in Genesis 26, verse 24, and Moses, as we have already seen in Numbers 12, as you have already mentioned, I'm just giving you the, the passages you can check that one yourselves, particularly Moses. Numbers 12, and Numbers 12 is an interesting chapter because Moses is challenged by his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam over the wife he had married, but then God intervenes and he describes Moses as my servant. God revealed himself in dreams, in visions, but when it comes to his servant Moses, he spoke with him face to face. That is what we read in, Gen in, in Numbers 12, over 7 and 8. Also in Joshua, when Moses died, God tells Joshua, my servant Moses is dead, and hands him over the responsibility of leading God's people. You read the same in 2 Kings 21, verse 8, and even in the last book of the Old Testament, there is reference to Moses, God describing him as my servant. Another one you have not mentioned is Caleb in Numbers 14, verse 24. And the one who is re referred to most in the Old Testament is none other than who? Who was the second king of Israel? David. And on very, very many occasions, God refers to David as my servant. You can read that one in 2 Samuel 3, verse 18, 7, verse 5 and 8, also in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 11, you can look at that one, chapter 14, 2 Kings, and so on. And even in the book of Psalms itself, and even in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 35, God refers to David as my servant. We have already mentioned Job. There are others, including Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 25, verse 9. So there are very many people whom God describes as my servant, 
And when we come to the book of Isaiah, even the nation of Israel is referred to, God refers to them as my servant. Isaiah 41, verse 8 and 9, 42, verse 19, 43, there are several passages, particularly from Isaiah 41 to 48, where God refers to the nation of Israel as my servant. Read even in the book of Jeremiah, that verse 10 and Jeremiah 30 and 46, verse 27 and 28, and even in Ezekiel. And so when you think about the nation of Israel, when God was rescuing them from their slavery in Egypt, he sent Moses. And what did Moses tell Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they may, eh? so that they may serve me. That is what is repeated on a number of occasions. The consequences of that Pharaoh's disobedience, of course, was the multiplication of those signs and wonders before God's people were delivered. They were his servants, but they were not faithful. God gave them a law. They did not keep that law. And that is why judgment had to come on them. So the, the servants of the Lord in Isaiah is different. And obviously, this one is reference to the Messiah, to Christ, as we, as we all know. In fact, I, as I was preparing, I was wondering whether it is even necessary to, 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 to discuss, to have this one as the focus of our discussion, because we are very familiar. We don't need to be told that the servant of the Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ. And even Jesus himself in John refers to his followers as my servants. So this servant of the Lord in Isaiah is a unique person who is going to suffer physical pain and humiliation because that is what you read. He suffers such humiliation in the work that the Lord had given him to do. But through his suffering, that is when the servant is going to accomplish his mission. That is delivering people from their sins, taking away the sins and guilt of others. So when you look at the first servant song, that is Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 9, we are given the mission of the servant as establishing justice to the nations. And justice is repeated three times in verse 1, 3, and 4. When you look at the second servant song in Isaiah 49, verse 1 to 9, the servant's message, from that passage, we, we, we find that the servant's message 
has universal relevance. The servant is going to be the light to the Gentiles. You read that one in verse 1 and 6. In the that servant song, Isaiah 50 from verse 4 to 11, we see the servant's obedience. The servant is perfected through his obedience. The fourth servant song primarily dwells on the suffering of the servant, but then it also tells us that the servant has a reward because in the end God is going to vindicate him. Even though he is going to throw to go through such suffering, the Lord is going to dedicate him. I would like us briefly to look at uh, some few passages, because as I said earlier on, to, my purpose today was to, to look at the, and as a, to give a, bro a broad introduction to the four servant songs, and then next Sunday, God willing, we will look at the first servant song. But when you look at this second part of Isaiah again, from 40 to 66, this one also can be divided into some three other parts from chapter 40 to 48. We have 216 verses, and more than half of those verses, in more than half of those verses, we find a lot about God's majesty and power as the Creator is contrasted with the idols. 115 out of 216 verses speak of God's majesty and power as the creator who is con contrasted with idols. And we know the idols are the crea creations of men. For example, when you look at 40 verse 28, God is asking, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is great. That one is telling us about the majesty of God. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Some versions talk about his understanding being past fighting. And when you look at but the one verse for it, this is what we read. And it's God himself who is asking, who has performed and done this, calling the generation from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and the last am he. He doesn't have an equal. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory, I will not... I'll give to no other, nor my praise to carved 
idols. That is what you read in 42, verse 8. He doesn't have an equal. And this is, he continues to pronounce himself in 43, verse 11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. 44 verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There are very many statements like those ones in this part of Isaiah. 45 verse 5 and verse 6. 45 verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You survivors of the nations, they have no knowledge. You carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it from old? So when you read Isaiah 40 and 41, God is asking very many questions. And what he is doing is to give us a picture of himself in comparison to the idols that people had fallen to. And that is why there is this emphasis on God being unique. Remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind. Your transgressors, he is accusing his people in Isaiah 48, 46, verse 8, and verse 9. He tells them, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And in 48, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. So God is actually drawing us, our attention to who he is. And that is the background within which we need to look at this servant of the Lord. And so when you look at, uh, for example, chapter 49 to 57, the Messiah is for, for portrayed as the savior and suffering servant who pays for the iniquities of his people and ushers in a kingdom of peace and righteousness throughout the earth. In the last part from 38 to 66, all who acknowledge their sins and trust in the Messiah will be delivered. And also, from that portion of Isaiah, we see peace, prosperity, and justice going to prevail as God makes all things new. So that is the a broader context within which we are looking at these songs of Isaiah, but the immediate context is Isaiah 40 and 41, particularly for the first song. 
And when we look at Isaiah 40, we are given a glimpse of the glorious majesty of God. When you read this passage, the, the first parts of this passage obviously are very encouraging because God is comforting his people. The ones of comfort, that is what opens Isaiah 40. But then when you read further, you will see the challenge that God brings, especially in, the, in light of the idols that his people have fallen into as their focus of worship. I would like us to read some few verses from this, from Isaiah 40. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. In verse 12, verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or who, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? To whom then would you liken God? Or what likeness would you compare? You know, that is the language we find in the Ten Commandments. Because God forbade his people to make any graven image, worship anything other than himself. And so God is asking his people to think about the idols they were worshiping. How do they compare with God? To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him. That I should be his equal. That is what God is asking his people. And then he tells them in verse 25, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. The heavenly bodies, who created them? Says the Holy One. He who brought out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And then verse 20, that we read earlier on. So God is challenging his people because of their, their sin, the sin of idolatry. And obviously, this is not something that Isaiah is, is, is bringing at this point, it, when you read the whole book, right from chapter 1, God is still con challenging his people because of their false worship. So what God, God is saying in Isaiah 40 is, how dare you bow down and pay homage to idols? How dare you rob me of my glory and give it to idols? Idols that you have constructed yourselves. So this is God's indictment 
of the folly of those who turn away from the living God, worship the God of their own imagination. And then when we come to Isaiah 42, a very interesting chapter, no, Isaiah 41, a very interesting chapter, we find the situation that we would expect to find in a courtroom. God is calling all the nations for judgment. And what we see in this chapter is direct confrontation between God, who is wronged, and us, because we don't have to only think about the people Isaiah was writing to. We don't have to, when we are reading Isaiah, we don't have to think about those things as being relevant only to the people of the Isaiah's day, but even to us, because we are, we are God's creation. God has created us. And so there is this direct confrontation between God, who is wronged, and us, his creatures. And what we are challenged to do is to defend ourselves or to give some excuses. Listen to what Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 41. Listen to me in silence. Actually, it's God who is speaking. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. It's God who is calling people for judgment. And sometimes when we think about judgment, we, we would want to put it to that final day when Christ appears and sits on the throne. But even here, God is calling people for judgment. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. And so when you look at this passage, God is describing himself as the sovereign controller of history. And God is challenging his people because of one problem, one sin, and that is this idolatry. And he is telling them, bring the idols and let us see what they are able to do. And God declares that they are less than nothing. They are worthless. So let's look at a few verses in this chapter from verse 21. This is what God says. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, what they may consider, that we may consider them, that we may know the outcome or declare to us the things to come. That, one, that message is directed to the idols. Bring them. Let them tell us what happened in the past. Let them tell us what will happen in future. Tell us what is to come hereafter. 
that we may know that you are God's, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. And those are God's words. And then in verse 24, he declares that idols are nothing. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The folly of following idols. That is the problem that God's people had fallen into. They had abandoned God. They were worshipping idols. Idols that the nations that God destroyed were worshipping. The gods of the Moabites, or the Ammonites, they had collected so many gods, as you read. Verse 26, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who had your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty. That is God's declaration as far as idols were concerned. It's a pity that God is sidelined as people follow idols which are their own creations. From this passage, if I may ask, what do you think is the most serious offense against God? What would you consider to be eh? Maybe, maybe you will need them. Give, give a, mic, a microphone. Just behind you. Eh? Idolatry. Okay. Because that is what God is challenging here. And obviously, when I look at all of us, most likely you're going to say, I don't have an idol that I worship. But think about it as we move on. So the most serious offense is failure to worship God while giving loyalty to worthless idols. You remember Joseph when he was in Egypt, serving Pontifar. And he was tempted, tempted to 
immorality by Pontifar's wife. What did he say? How did he look at that temptation and the sin that he was being drawn into? Yes. Yeah. In Genesis 39, verse, 13, verse 9, Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against, against who? Against Pontifar. Was it a sin against Pontifar? It was a sin against God. Because that is what it really is. So Joseph had gotten it right because when we sin, we sin against God. Even though we offend and we grievously sometimes cause harm to our fellow human beings. We have already, I've already referred to Moses in Numbers 12 and in verse 3. Numbers 12 describes Moses as the most humble person on earth. That is how God, uh, how, how the, the, the Bible describes Moses. But you come to Numbers 20, and people are complaining because of lack of water. God gives him some instruction. Moses, to Aaron, and the, the elders of Israel, he calls them together and he tells them, he tells Moses and Aaron to go. He tells Moses to take his rod and then go. And do what? When did the God, how did the God provide water in, in, in the past? How did God provide water for the people? Because this is not the first time in Numbers, in Numbers 14, 20. Moses was told to do what? To strike a rock in the first instance. But in this second instance, God gave him clear instructions. Go, speak to the rock, and it will give water. Take the staff and assemble the, the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. You shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from, took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered they assembled together before the rock, and they said, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted, his, lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. God is merciful. Because clearly Moses is not obeying the Lord. The Lord had told him to speak to the rock. Instead, out of hunger, 
and most likely primed. Because when you look at the language that the way he is addressing the people, here now you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of the rock? When he is saying we, whom is he referring to? Whom is he equating himself to? Primed and taken over. You know the consequences, of course. Moses was denied entry into the promised land because God says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So that is, it's a serious sin when we don't glorify God. Here, Moses is probably acting in anger. You remember earlier on when God threatened to destroy these people, he pleaded for them. But this time he's calling them rebels instead of seeing them as God's people, crying and taken over. God could not stand that. He should have given the glory to God. But instead, he drew attention to himself. Shall we bring water for these people out of the rock? So when you look at uh, passages in Deuteronomy, for example, in chapter 4, God is giving warnings regarding the people. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is actually preparing the people to enter the promised land. Verse 24 of Deuteronomy, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you, are, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away to all, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the, the whole heaven. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So that is a warning that these people were given before they entered the promised land. In chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, God is reminding them of the Ten Commandments. Again, you can look at a few verses. Verse 10, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have no other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. 
you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, by showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5 is about what? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Okay. You shall uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In the New Testament, that is what? Greatest commandment. The greatest commandment. In fact, it is a summary of the law, because when the Lord was asked which is the greatest commandment, he quoted that passage. Then he quoted the other passage in Leviticus, which talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. But when you look at this particular commandment, it's actually the greatest, because it is telling us who should be the center of our worship, of our love. We are to love the Lord, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is the summary. You can say that is the summary of the law. But they didn't keep it. What we find in Isaiah is these people following so many idols, useless idols. Maybe from that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. If this is the greatest commandment, what are the consequences of breaking this commandment? Let me put the question differently. If this is the greatest commandment, what, would you, what do you think would be the greatest sin? Any idea? What would you consider to be the greatest sin if this is the greatest commandment? And John tells us sin is what? Sin is lawlessness. And so, if God has commanded us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, anything apart from that constitutes the greatest sin. Because sometimes we might think that sin is uh, hurting our neighbor. 
just like we looked at, uh, uh, Joseph gave us the example of Joseph that I'm referring to. Joseph did not consider sexual immorality with Pontifar's wife as the greatest sin. He considers that sin as greatest wickedness against God. So that is what I want us to bear in mind. So when we look at the failure of these people, the failure of their leaders, the failure of of Israel as a nation, the greatest sin that they committed is abandoning the God who and redeemed them from their slavery and following idols that the other nations followed. Remember, Isaiah is writing to the people People who had already sinned against God, people who were on their way to exile because he was writing to Judah, even though it was going to take maybe a, a hundred, another hundred years, still judgment was going to come. And so from this passage, there are certain things that I would like us to view to consider as far as the way God views idolatry from especially from chapter 41. Number one, idolatry is universal. Idolatry is universal. Let's look at uh, Verse 5 to 7. The coastland saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good cheer. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is tending, it is rending for the soldering. Then he fastens it with pegs that it might not totter. So people are encouraging one another in, in idolatry. And here, Isaiah is addressing the coastlands, nations that were far off, not just the small nation of Judah, but all the nations. In fact, when you look at this passage, all the nations are assembled in the courtroom. And we see them encouraging one another as we have read. And this turns out to be a conspiracy against God. And this is really what all the religions of the world are about. All human philosophies 
including political systems, even economic enterprises, good as they are, but it is still a conspiracy against God. Man is trying to shake off his dependence upon the Creator. Instead, they are looking for security in created things. Man is searching for ways to replace God. And this is very true, even in our day. The other thing that we note from this chapter 41 of Isaiah is idolatry is stupid. Idols are lifeless. Look at verse 22. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. In verse 23, my friend, verse 23. So, <laughs> idols cannot do anything good or bad, yet people worship them. Idols are worthless, and those who worship them are actually blind, willfully blind. And so when we fail to believe in God and to worship him, to give him the honor that is due to his name, we will fall for anything. We will be worshiping anything. For example, when you read Ecclesiastes, the preacher describes idols as vanity of vanities. And the things that he describes, the ones that I'm calling idols, are things like wisdom, pleasure, great accomplishments, hand work or hand labor, popularity, human religions, wealth, or even family, because he even talks about children. When people work so hard so that they, they, their children will have a better life, even that one to the preacher is vanity of vanities. And the reason is because these things, good as they are, cannot satisfy or save. The pity that people pursue created things while closing their eyes, God, who created, who is our creator. So, number one, we have said idolatry is universal. Idolatry is stupid because people are following worthless things, idols that are lifeless, that can't help in any way. And then number three, idolatry is wicked. Verse 24, indeed you are nothing, and your work is nothing. 
he who chooses you is an abomination. Verse 24 is talking about those who worship idols, describing that one as an abomination. It is detestable. So the, what's the sin in the world is failure to worship God with all your heart. And obviously, a lot of things that people pursue, good as they are, are still idols. We can describe them as perverted idols. People are pursuing what? Things like education, good health, self-respect. And even those who are in, in the ministry, even, even preachers themselves, preachers of the gospel, they can take pride in their ministry instead of giving glory to God. Things like family. We have to take care of our families, but it can replace God if we are not careful. How much time do we spend on the TV? or on social media, or sport. Idols take very different paths. And so what we see, what we are seeing here is uh, God's great concern, being to vindicate his honor and his own glory. We share such concern with God. What is our greatest concern? Is it health? Is it happiness? Is it forgiveness, good as it is? Is it escape from hell? Is it work? Is it preaching? Do we really share God's concern? What is the purpose of our church? TBC. It's here in the church constitution. Let me read it for you. In the church constitution, this is what you have stated as the purpose of the local church. The sole purpose of our existence is to glorify God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when, sometimes back we used to, to, ask, to, to, to memorize questions in the shorter catechism, I came across a version of that shorter catechism in modern English, and the very first question is, what is man's primary purpose? And the answer is man's primary purpose is to glorify God, the joy him forever. And that is what we need to realize. We are there to honor God, to glorify him. and to enjoy him. And that is why we need to be aware of these distractions 
idols, because they are, they are idols, they are everywhere. If we don't worship God, if we don't love the Lord with the whole of our heart, it means that we are giving our attention to something else, and that something, whatever it is, is an idol. And uh, I, I would like to end the session by quoting from a hymn, you know, Grace Hymns, hymn number 650, offer a closer walk with God. This is what we read in the first stanza, offer a closer, and this hymn it was written by William Cooper. Offer a closer walk with God, a calm and a heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads to the land. In the second stanza, where is the blessedness I knew when I first sought the Lord? Where is the soul? Refreshing view of Jesus and his want. And in the land stanza, what peaceful hours I then enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void. The world can never feel. The fourth stanza is the one which is relevant to what we've been saying about idols, because this is what. What the Cooper says reminds us in this, this hymn, the dearest idol I have known, whatever, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it down from thy throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene, serene my frame, so pure light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. So the challenge to all of us is to examine ourselves. What is it that is drawing us away from the Lord? What is it that stands out as an idol that distracts us from worshiping the Lord? So that is the context within which we will look at uh, these songs these servant songs. Because when we, 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 as we examine these servant songs, here is a unique person whose sole purpose is actually to restore God's glory, to bring honor and glory to God. Because God's people had fallen short of that. We are going to stop there. I don't know if there's any question, any comment. So next Sunday, God, yes. Just thought to point out that in the public reading of scripture today from Numbers 33, the last verse of that chapter tells us what God will do to people who do not destroy idols because he had commanded Israelites not to, and uh, he warns Israel, if you don't, I will do this to you. Just inviting you to look out for the last verse of Numbers 33. Okay. Just, just remember that uh, I think it is, it, it's in uh, Ezekiel, 
when God was pointing us at the idols in the heart, hidden in the heart. And so it is not just physical idols, but anything else. People may not even see. There was a lot of religion throughout the history of Israel, but still God was, not, was missing because people were distracted from worshiping God. Their attention was drawn to idols. We are going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you because your God who is holy, your God who is exalted. Lord, we pray that even as we meet, worship you today, we will truly remember who you are and give you the glory and the honor that is due to your name. Be with us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity of giving us. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray.